I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Katrina Spade. She's an architect with a passion to redesign death care, known as the Urban Death Project. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I have been intrigued and been looking forward to this conversation for many weeks. It's, we're talking today about the Urban Death Project. And so before we even begin our conversation, how did you become interested in the whole death design environment sort of thing? Well, I was um, just turning 30 when I began graduate school for architecture. And so I was, you know, eight years older than the average student and um, had a few young children at that point and was therefore relatively aware of my own mortality. (laughs) And um, so I, uh, you know, I just started looking into the industry because I was curious about what I would choose for my body when I died. Um, And I come from a non-religious family. And so I was thinking, oh, what do people do if they don't have the guidance of a priest or a rabbi? Um, And it didn't take me long after looking into the industry to just be kind of like unimpressed by the offerings by both cremation and conventional burial. And that was the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your family, because death and dying seem to be sort of a frank and normal conversation around the dinner table. That's true. Um, Both my parents are in medicine. My mom is a retired physician assistant. My father was an internal medicine physician. And... uh, so it wasn't uncommon to talk about patients who had were sick or were dying or had died. Um, and in addition, they were sort of like gentlemen, gentlewomen, farmers, in that we raised um, cows and pigs for meat, kind of like as a hobby, but we definitely ate them. And then also... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought, I'm sorry, that's sort of... A, go on, I'm they, sorry. <laughs> we did name them, and then we did eat them. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and we also grew our own vegetables and stuff. So it was very... We, we always composted, so... Um, and we always were aware of the natural cycles, maybe more than the average kid. Um, yeah, so I think that may be part of it, too. And I, I also seem to remember both my grandmother's being relatively death aware, not squeamish about talking about what they wanted for their funeral or, you know, what it was like to be a mortal human being. So I think I come by it honestly. So did you ever think about going into the medical field? Yes, in fact, I did. I thought that was probably my only option because I had so many people in medicine in my family and I somehow missed that you could actually have design as a career. Um, so I, I did. I thought I'd be a midwife for a long time. And which is sort of the other end of the spectrum, I guess. Human composting. It's interesting. Um, are you ever alarmed when you state the obvious? I mean, frankly, we, we're, we've been doing this animal composting and composting with gardens for years. So are, you, are people are alarmed with your frankness when it comes to just putting it out there? I really hope that my frankness is part of my charm, but I'm sure that, <laughs> I'm sure that for I some think people it it's like a deal breaker. You know, there's like a kind of broader piece of our mission 
in this work, which is just to get people talking about death at all. And um, certainly the Urban Death Project isn't the only organization that's doing that. There's lots of awesome people and organizations trying to get folks to think about death before it happens. Um, but I think that fact, like that, the fact that we believe that that's important plays in really nicely to the frankness. Um, because the minute, the minute you say those words, human composting, you're going to be having a discussion about, about death and mortality. Or, or they're running away from you. <laughs> or they're running away. I mean, we, we've also named the process, um, well, because it is a very specific to humans process, we've named it recomposition, as in to recompose, as in music, okay. or a human to soil. So I think that it is worth, like, we, at the same time that we like to be um, very frank and honest, and we think that's important, hence the name Urban Death Project, we also think it's, you know, worth looking at other ways of describing the process. So let's talk about cremation and burials for a minute. There are two options, burial in the ground or cremation. That's, um, but there's a lot of green um, options coming about. But what amazed me from your website and doing a little research when it came to looking into the Urban Death Project was how much toxic things we are putting back into the earth when we die. Talk to me a little bit about what you've discovered and how much that we put in the ground. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it didn't take me long to be pretty appalled by the environmental impact of both cremation and burial. And so if we just take, start with conventional burial, which is the, the thing we're all used to hearing about where you have uh, the body, which is pumped full of formaldehyde-laden embalming fluid, and that's to preserve the corpse for like um, a fair amount of time, probably, you know, from weeks to years. Um, and it's, it's interesting, that whole process of embalming to me is very interesting um, from a historic point of view. It's only been around since about the Civil War, modern embalming. Um, when someone figured out that they could make a lot of money embalming soldiers in the Civil War and sending them home to their families, um, that stuck around in this industry as a way to preserve a corpse so that you can have a viewing. And it's only really common in any with any regularity in the U.S. and Canada. So it's not practiced in Europe or the you know or the rest of the or rest of the world. Really. That's mm -hmm. interesting. It is interesting. I mean, the, the truth is, if you want to have a viewing, you can cool the body with ice or in a refrigerator, and there's no reason you need to, um, you know, uh, pickle it, I guess, is a good way of putting it. <laughs> what I found out, too, with, with embalming fluid, that's, a, that's actually a carcinogen, a poisonous fluid. You pump, um, I think it's an average of three gallons per body, and then you bury that in the ground. And if you just think about that as a long-term solution to caring for our dead, it really doesn't make any sense. Um, and just to give you a sense, you've taken this, you've got this body, you've pumped it full of what's essentially poisonous liquid. And then um, usually there's either a metal casket or a hardwood casket. Um, and then the casket is almost always placed in a concrete lined grave. So what that essentially is, is like a six to eight inch thick concrete box that the casket is lowered into and then a top a concrete top is put is put over it the reason for that is that uh, cemeteries have trouble mowing the lawns and and doing the upkeep of the grounds when you have a little bit of if you don't have a concrete uh, grave liner because you get a little sinkage over time without that it's is not that legally the reason, really that is 
I'm afraid so. That's the entire reason. You know, the, the really icky thing is that you'll have some funeral homes, and this is certainly not all, but some funeral homes will sell it as a way to protect your loved one. Like, I don't even know what to say about I that. Don't, well, protect yeah. them from what? But <laughs> What was amazing is that this is what I think I got from your website was 2 million cast tickets are used and put back into the ground per year. 10,000 bodies per acre. 30 million like hardwood whatever goes back into the earth. 1.6 million tons of concrete. Are you freaking kidding me? Back into the earth. Um, not back, but into the earth. And then 750 thousand hundred thousand gallons of embalming fluid we are putting back into the earth and enough metal to build the golden gate bridge is that is that really true i mean that's those are the numbers that are out there that are um that have been calculated i think i love that golden gate bridge one because it's just so like it's so very visual. Well, and it also is just so shocking. And, you know, we're talking about recycling. We're talking about, you know, taking care of our environment. And yet the one thing that no one really thinks about is end of life and what we're putting back into the earth when it comes to these these rituals that we have. And it it's it's really interesting. I never knew that the concrete was there for it not to for the people to mow the grass in cemeteries. And I'm sure there's a lot more other reasons that's being very simplified, but it's, it's one of those things that, that knowledge is power. And when you don't, when you don't know, like for when Oprah says, you know, when you know better, you do better. And I, I found out a lot of things from your website that really opened my eyes to uh, how I want to do things better when it comes to, disposing of my body when, when I'm no longer around. So touche for you. So the birth of the redesign when it comes to, you know, burials or cremations, you're not against those. You're trying to provide another, econ- not an environmental way to look at the entire end of life ceremony, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's very interesting is you have a real decrease of of people choosing conventional burial, that process I just described. Anyway, so that is actually going away. Um, it's, it's less and less important for people to have a specific grave site to visit. People move a lot. Um, it's unlikely that you're still living in the place where you and your family grew up and your parents and your parents' parents. Um, it happens, but if, if you don't, then the thing a grave's going to give you might be just a little bit of guilt that you're not going there to visit it. So uh, in fact, Cremation rates have risen very quickly over the past 60 years, um, especially and, and how now have surpassed um, conventional burial rates. So it's more popular in the U.S. to be cremated than to be buried as of last year. Um, and what, what was interesting about cremation to me is, is I thought, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good option. I probably would choose it. And it's obviously uh, it's cheaper and it's a little simpler and then it's more it's more environmentally friendly. That's what I thought. And that's actually what I think most people think. Uh, but the truth is that cremation obviously uses natural gas typically, so that's a fossil fuel. And um, and it emits carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, so you've got, plus actually emits um, mercury and other particulates. So you've got actually an air pollution and emissions problem for, from cremation. Um, and so there's this fu- funny kind of um, default choice that people say, oh, this is the better option. And yet it really isn't any more environmentally friendly. 
But at the same time, I will say if, uh, you know, I drive a car and not all the time, but when I need to. And if, if I was loving, if I was a fire lover and I thought that would be a good way to go, then there's no reason it shouldn't exist as an, op- as an option for consumers. I think it would be a little hypocritical to say, well, I drive a car all my life, but I shouldn't be cremated. You know, it's sort of, you know, a little, a little picky, I think. Right. But I do think a lot of people would prefer an option that doesn't pollute the earth with their last gestures. And so the Irvin Death Project was born out of creating just another option. And you were, you were in architecture school. And so tell me a little bit about the evolution of this idea. Sure. Well, I was thinking about the funeral industry and, and knew enough to think, hey, this isn't good enough. We can do better. And then I was thinking a lot about um, what it was to be a grieving person and how um, how our places in the cities and and elsewhere, for that matter, support the grieving or don't support the grieving. So thinking about cemeteries, crematories, and funeral homes, and um, in a similar manner, uh, was sort of just unimpressed by the offerings. And uh, so I started to think about what, what would a place be like and who would the people be working at this place if we were trying to really support the grieving and in, in, in really having a different death care experience. And then a friend of mine called me on the phone and she said, have you heard about these researchers and farmers that have been composting whole cows? And it really did just click at that moment that this system, this new system or, or this new model that I was designing for the grieving and for the end of life could incorporate an entirely new way of caring for the body itself. So that's when I began designing a new system of disposition, which is the word for cremation or burial or recomposition. Um, and the, the basic idea is you can take a human body and in about four to six weeks, you've created um, using a completely natural process, uh, really relying on microbes and bacteria, um, You've created a nutrient-rich soil that you can again grow a garden with, um, use to nourish the grove of trees in the park that you love, or something like that. And you have a really great animated video on your website that really shows and kind of walks you through what it would look like and possibly feel like. Have you experienced any like negative reactions to this project? Yeah, I mean, I've gotten you know a few kind of like angry emails or comments in social media that say, oh, this is so crazy. You're just trying to, I mean, you know, pick from a list of expletives. Um, I don't even know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think, I think it hits a, it hits a nerve for people who are afraid of the idea of death, which let's just say is like a lot of people. Um, but the comments for the most part, the, the, the angry comments or the, the negative comments are usually like a little bit out there. And then I think people in general understand that what we're proposing is, is another option for consumers that wouldn't you rather have three or four or eight options rather than just more or less two. And so I think if you don't like it, you just don't bother with it. It doesn't, it doesn't really need to be something you have a bone to pick with. You just kind of shrug it off. Well, I was totally fascinated with it. I, I have an issue. I have just fear. And this is crazy because I'm going to be dead, but I I don't want to go into the ground. But when I saw your project in the video and it walks me through it and how it was, it was really kind of 
dust to dust kind of thing, truly, of naturally just dying and how your body decomposes in this in this way. It was just, it blew my mind because I've never seen anything like this. So you have been working with Western Carolina University here in North Carolina. How are y'all collaborating? Yeah, we started collaborating at the beginning of 2015. Um, and in, at Western Carolina, they have a human decomposition research facility, which is part of their um, forensic anthropology department. So they actually are able to take human donors who want to donate their body to their program. And then they um, do various research using those bodies. Um, most of the time, the research they're doing there is um, open air decomposition. So the body's laid out in the forest in this enclosed fenced area, of course. Um, and then and then it's let to, left to decompose and, and the students both study the process. And then when the when only the bones are left, they move the bones into the lab and use those for ossuary studies. And then they also use the the ground where the body had laid um, to study, to learn how to clean and uh, uh, research a crime lab. So they so they actually teaching forensic studies using that spot where the body had lain. So it's kind of a fascinating program. They also do cadaver dog training there where they work with law enforcement to train dogs to find the scent of a uh, decomposing human, which it turns out is unlike the scent of anything else. So um, that is really critical to be able to provide that opportunity for the, the cadaver dogs. That's amazing. So you've gone back and forth from Seattle to North Carolina since for a few couple of years. Yep. I go, I've been back um, probably a half a dozen times. And um, Dr. Cheryl Johnson is the head researcher there and the director of that program. And Basically, she she was interested when I said, "Hey, you know, this is a way to break down a body from all the, all the way from human to to not human anymore. Would you be interested in researching this?" She said, "No question, absolutely." And so, what we've done there is um, set up a number of kind of like early proof of concept trials where we've um, used a very basic setup, which is about a foot and a half of wood chips on the ground, kind of creates a bed. Uh, lay the body on top of that, and then that body is covered with another foot and a half to two feet of wood chips and other co-composting materials. And then basically what you've created there is the environment to let the um, thermophilic microbes, which means the microbes and bacteria that love high heat, to thrive. So you're creating enough mass and, and the right ratio of carbon and nitrogen so that the microbes and bacteria that are just in the air all around us, some of them on the wood chips, um, can thrive there and they break the body down quite quickly. So that's the work we've done there. Is, um, it's, it's sort of in a rural setting and it's different than what the Urban Death Project will be implementing down the road, but it's great early proof of concept. Well, since we're on this subject, because you call this sort of magic, right? You And, <laughs> and the body and with these wood chips and the gases that, that it takes to decompose, it actually heats up to... A very, I think, a high temperature. Oh, yes, it's pretty hot. So how does that all work? Well, I say it's magic, which should clue you into the fact that I'm not a scientist. <laughs> so, um, And I like to make that pretty clear to anyone listening right away. Like my role is definitely not science. And, and it's, uh, I'm a designer and uh, I guess I'm a project manager when it comes to just getting all the necessary expertise and brains in the right room 
to make something happen. That's my, that's my skill. But, um, yeah. So, so what's so cool about this process is a lot of heat is created and it's created from these microbes and bacteria as they break something down, as they're eating, they're creating heat. Um, and this particular colony or, or community, I should say, of microbes and bacteria thrives in between 120 to 160 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's really quite hot. And you've like tested this. You like put something down in the ground and like, oh, that's hot. Um, you actually measured this. Well, we... You're not a scientist. We use, yep, we use temp- temperature... <laughs> I'm not a scientist. We use temperature probes. One of my... Yeah, one of my favorites was uh, for trial number four. Um, and we, we actually set it all up and it was, I think it was about 20 degrees Fahrenheit outside. It was quite chilly outside in North Carolina in, in the winter in the, in the hills. Um, and so it was chilly outside. The body was very cool when we laid it down and we covered it up. And I think it was six days later, I got a text from Dr. Johnson saying 158 degrees. That's all it said. And of course, that's always great to just know that, um, that indeed nature works as it's supposed to. And um, you've got tremendous heat. And so the, the goal with the system is you, you want to sustain that heat for a number of days. Um, and, and one of the things that's great about it is the heat is what kills the pathogens. So you have, in the end, a very sustainable and safe soil amendment. Um, and that research, most of that research has been done using livestock by farmers. So there's a lot of research. Cornell has done a bunch and Washington State University has done a bunch where they've tested the safety of, of uh, like large scale composting for, for livestock. That's just amazing to me. But you know what, you know, I'm human. And I know that there's certain smells that as a human, I can't smell, but my dog smells them all day long. Is there is there a smell to this process? Yeah. So one of my other favorite stories is that um, Dr. Johnson was telling me, after this, she'd had a bunch of the cadaver dogs to visit because that was their job. They, they were using, they were training the dogs there on site and they'd completely ignored the mound of wood chips because they couldn't smell anything inside. And these dogs can smell. And so I think that's just my sort of favorite anecdote to, um, to, to answer the question of odor, which is that if, the, if there was going to be an odor, I don't think this project could succeed because I actually think there are some things that the human, we just, the human heart, we can't handle that. So um, the couple of ways that we can ensure there will be no odor is number one, when the process is working really well, there is very little odor. The microbes and bacteria uh, are, they're, they're sort of not even preventing it. It's just not able to occur because things are happening so quickly. And for those of uh, people listening who have, backyard compost piles, they might know that when it's working well, when it's getting enough oxygen, which is a key component of all this, um, when they've, you know, turned it enough and you can tell that there's good activity, there's very little odor. It smells a a lot like soil. But the minute you get an an anaerobic process going where you you don't have oxygen, enough oxygen for the process, that's when you start to smell that. Let's just talk about food compost. That's when you start to smell that bad, bad compost smell. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. So it really shouldn't, it won't, doesn't have much odor. And then in addition, because we needed to have not a trace of an odor ever, we'll be in, you know, we'll be using kind of a redundancy of biofilters. So biofilters could be anything from a pallet of hay in between material to charcoal 
to something like a green roof that's um, that's actually filtering the last bit of air as it leaves the recomposition center. So there's a lot of ways to employ bio- biofilters to just ensure that that's not an issue. Wow. So the Urban Death Project, it is a nonprofit organization, correct? Mm-hmm. And you guys are looking for people to help fund this dream of yours to come to fruition because you're you want to add additional choices at the end of life. And I think the baby boomers have kicked the door open when it comes to the end of life conversation. And I think they are so interested in end of life, additional end of life choices. I mean, for instance, the medical aid and dying is is. I think, on the move because of the baby boomers. And I do feel like these environmental resources like Green Barrow, I've read that you could have a suit, but your concept is a way for the community to rally around and give back to the environment. So talk to me a little bit about how you guys raise funds um, and when is this dream going to be a reality? So, yeah, we're nonprofits. So far, all our funding... And we've gotten a lot done, I should say, in the last couple of years. And that's thanks to individuals who are moved by the project and they push the donate button or send a check. Um, it's been amazing to just have this rally, like uh, I think you put it well, like this community funded work has been really amazing. I, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't do it. And I wouldn't be able to if it weren't for the many people who really want it to exist. Um We've also had some foundations that have funded us. So I, I began the project when I got word that, that I was going to be an Echoing Green Fellow, which is this foundation in New York that provides early stage projects with sort of seed funding to get going. And um, that, was a way I, that was the way I could kind of quit my day job and start working on this full time. And then we've had a few foundations, um, family foundations here in Seattle um, that have helped out as well. And they've said, yes, this should exist. So yeah, we're, we're community funded and it's pretty awesome. So tell me how individuals can support you. Tell me your website. How can people find you? The first way to support the effort is to, um, yeah, go to our website. That's www.urbandeathproject.org. And when you're there, take a look, see what you think. Uh, sign up for the newsletter, which I send, I send out every one or two months. So it's not a lot of mail, but, um, we keep you updated on our progress there. Um, and then if you feel like donating, it's quite easy to do. And of course it's tax exempt hundred percent. Um, and there's a big donate button at the bottom of the screen if you scroll down. So we, we would love having donations all sizes. Um, we've had donations from $1 all the way to $10,000. Um, and it's been really amazing. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, I think we also just ask people get a conversation started with their, with their family and with their friends. And the hard thing is this isn't yet available to the public anywhere. So it's got to be one of those conversations that says when this is available, it's what I want for myself. Um, but we're working really hard to make it happen. So what year are you hoping this is going to be a reality? I'm shooting for 2023 to have it available. Um, you know, our first location will likely be Seattle, Washington. I'm here and um, it's a pretty good city for this kind of work, if you can imagine. And But, but our goal is to really create um, a system that can be implemented everywhere you know, as fast as possible. So we're working on that now. And it's one of the major questions on our minds is like, how can we get it out there fast? Well, I was talking to a a friend of mine who's really big on 
preserving the environment, protecting the environment. And I sent her a link to your website and she was just like, so when are we going to do this here? So, yeah, exactly. so I'm hoping maybe my hometown might be your next stop because she was very, very interested and she's so passionate about the environment and what and how on a daily basis we can um, not pollute it. So she was very thrilled to hear that this was coming down. And so 2023, you're hoping to have uh, an establishment that people could actually see and tour right down Seattle, Mm -hmm. um, Washington. That's the goal. That is amazing. Where are you located, by the way? I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina on the coast. Okay. You guys are doing amazing things when it comes to end of life from healthcare to the dying process to the burial process. Very innovative stuff out there in the Northwest. I have to tell you, it was a little bit of dumb luck for me to land here in terms of the project, but it is a great place. You're right. There's there's funeral directors who are doing things differently. There's um, there's, you know, end of life stuff is strong. And I think it's an excellent place to be in what people call the alternative death care movement. So if you've got the funeral industry, as we've experienced it so far, now we're creating the alternative death care movement. And it's, it's really fun. Well, I cannot wait for this to open. And I'm hoping I can come out and see it. And I think you are giving a lot of individuals a possible choice. Um, a third choice when it comes to burial ceremonies. And I think it's extraordinary. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you I'm glad you like it. Good luck to you. And thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm hoping that you're going to get a lot of inquiries um, from people who are listening and uh, at least people interested in learning what you guys are doing out in Seattle and how we can copy that and put it nationally. Yeah, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, good luck to you. And thank you so much for your time. Okay, take care. You too. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.